We've been going through Ephesians 4, and we have been walking through it slowly and steadily to, to learn as the Lord has for us on these passages. And what we have seen in these commands, in a sense, these imperatives, these exhortations from the apostle to the church is one of taking on this new identity. All right, if, if once again, God has done this great work of giving this new identity, and if we have this new identity, this new life, then that new life then looks new. Right? You cannot convince someone that you have a new car when you're rolling around in a 78 Pinto. Okay? It doesn't work. Uh, and so, so the, the gospel work in the life of the believer brings about real transformation. Real transformation. Real transformation. In our culture, in our culture, we have seen, though, on the other hand, that anyone can call themselves a Christian, claim Christianity, and yet with very little transformation or none at all. Um, it, it goes back to that example of the car, but in my, my notes I wrote that it's, it's, it's like trying to convince someone who looks like a caterpillar that they're a butterfly. You can say all you want that it's a butterfly. One day it might be a butterfly, but if metamorphosis has not taken place, that transformation, then it's not a butterfly. It's still a, it's still a caterpillar. So this is what Ephesians 4 is telling us. It's saying that because of the work of the gospel, the work of God, the, the, the miraculous, gracious, merciful work of God, as those three chapters, one through three, told us, Ephesians 4 is this is how it's now lived out. This is how it's, what it looks like. This is what that theology looks like in the doxology of our lives. Okay? That's how, that's how it works out. So let's look at Ephesians 4. And we're going to start in verse 25. We already did 25, preached 25, 26, and 27, but I want to read it together because they, they go really well together. And we'll be doing, we'll be unpacking together verse 28. Starting in verse 25, he says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And we're going to stop there this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now, as we open your word together, that you would open our hearts and our eyes to see and feel the beauty of the gospel and its transforming work in us this morning. I pray you would teach us, 
what it means to continue to put off our old self and to put on Christ. All these things we, we do by grace because of Christ's atoning work on the cross. And we give you the glory. We pray in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So our passage this morning, going in line with what we've already studied in verses 25 through 27, gives us, once again, starts off with a negative command, the negative imperative command to to not steal anymore, right? To, To no longer steal. Let the thief among you no more steal. Do not do it anymore. And stealing, as we all know, could probably define it, is basically this, is not taking or taking something that is not rightfully yours, whether it be monetarily, whether it be materially, whatever it is, if it's not given to you or if it's not earned, is called stealing. This is what we teach to our children, right? If it's not yours, don't take it kind of stuff. Even if you think it is or because you want it, it doesn't, doesn't make you make it yours. Now, as we, we talked a couple weeks ago about falsehood, uh, stealing is not necessarily a trait that only children have, believe it or not, right? Stealing is a trait that many people, unfortunately, because of the nature of sin and the fallenness of man, stealing and thievery has always been rampant. The heart of man is deceived. It always wants something that it can't have. It's always being deceived. We had a, um, one of our children, I, told not to be, I was told not to be specific when using my children as an example, so I'm not. Or I have to buy them things, is what, I've, what I was told. Um, but one of our children, as, as, a, as she, because they're all girls, so I'm not singling it out, that, that uh, uh, we, would, we would call her when she was like two, she was a little, like Lydia's age, we would call her Swiper the Fox. And Swiper the Fox is a character off of Dora the Explorer who wanted to come steal their stuff. Uh, Eva, don't, or don't give it away, Eva. Don't give it away, everybody else. Right? Uh, but we would call them Swiper the Fox, and we would say, Swiper no Swipey, just like Dora would say. And, uh, and being a guy, you know, I, I stuff didn't really care, and I was older, but when your kids are doing it, it's cool, it's cute. And, and it was cool and cute because that when she was taking things, and she would take, like, keys and remotes and dog leashes and toys, and, and she would hide them um, just so that we would say, Swiper no Swipey. And uh, we all survived. We all survived that phase. We still have our keys. We still have our sunglasses and all those missing, uh, all those missing things. But we also know that stealing is not just a trait that children have. And once again, it doesn't, doesn't it seem elementary, again, to have another sermon about some kind of ethic on stealing, as we talked about falsehood a couple weeks ago, and then last week we talked about anger. But let me share with you a few statistics that I found that are startling. They're startling to me, these numbers. And, and this is coming from 2012. This is the best statistics I could, I could find. Uh, maybe you have better um, in 2012, the national crime statistics, okay, and i got a website if you want to find it, um, burglary, burglary, what's that word? There it is. There's sometimes words, just don't come out. I want to say hamburger, maybe I'm hungry. Um, burglary. 2,103,787 reported cases. 
2.1 million reported cases of burglary. I got it. Larceny and theft. There's a difference. 6.1 million cases. Motor vehicle theft, 721,000. That's 2012. So that's the national crime, crime statistics. Let's pull it down to Georgia, right? Because national seems too far away. Let's go to Georgia. The B word again? Burglary. Burglary. 2012, same year, 86,000 and some change. 86,000. Larceny and theft, 223,000. Motor vehicle theft. 2012 in the state of Georgia was 28,000 cars. That's probably more cars we have in this county. What do you all think? Maybe? 28,000. Just in 2012. What was going on in 2012? What were we doing? Right? All right. Well, okay, so that's... Yeah, every, we're all, and, and, and all of us were like, that's Atlanta, right? That, that's Atlanta. That's not us. Okay, let's go to 2012 Statesboro. Ready? And we were all here at 2012 in Statesboro, every single one of us, right? Except for Kate. She's the only one that has... And Lydia. They, they both have an out. The B word again? Burglary. There it is. Um, I need it phonetically spelt for me. Uh, 297. 297 cases of burgers in, state, in Statesboro in 2012. Uh, larceny and theft, 964. 964. Motor vehicle theft, and we were pretty good at this, though. Only two. Was, it any, was that one of y'all's cars? <laughs> Man, their, their car stolen at that, in that... In, in that year. Um, and, and by the way, looking at the, the numbers, and then you can do statistics and stuff like that, each, the state of Georgia and state, Statesboro, is higher than the national average per capita, right, per, per uh, popular, uh, population. So our, our crime is, and that was 2012. I don't know what it is now. I don't know if it's gone down or not, uh, but that was, that was 2012. And, and, and by the way, that's just, that's just, um, that's just, uh, uh, those three crimes, right? Those three things. There's a whole list. We didn't even get to, um, we didn't even get to the, uh, the, uh, the uh, gosh, the hurting people crimes. What is that called? Yeah, those kind of crimes, right? The real bad, the bad, bad things, right? Not just against personal property, but against persons, okay? So theft, though, is not a victimless crime, right? As, as, as we like to think that it's not, right? We, not we, because I'm not implicating, but but theft is not a victimless crime. If you've been stolen from, it's not victimless, right? In, in fact, you, even though it's maybe just a few things, you certainly feel a violation has taken place. Like you feel you've been violated in a way that's so personal, it's hard to regain that. I want to take shoplifting, for example. The one that we kind of maybe think, maybe not us, right? People think that, that may be a little bit okay because I'm stealing from the man, Right? Let me, let me just throw some numbers out there here. There are approximately, in our country now, 27 million people who shoplift. 27 million people who shoplift. That's one in 11. So that means maybe two of us are shoplifters. No. Right? I know, I know. I'm just showing the example, right? The numbers, statistics, you can make them do anything, right? Uh, 27 million, right? And in the last five years, 
10 million people have been caught shoplifting. 25% of those who have been caught shoplifting are kids. I don't know what they define as kid anymore. Culture says like 24 now and lower. It's ridiculous, right? 25% are shoplifters or kids. 75% are adults. 55% of the adults say that they started shoplifting in their teens. So let's talk about our favorite store, Walmart. Walmart can lose up to $3 billion a year in shoplifting. But that's sticking it to Walmart, right? Let's give it to Walmart. Let's stick it to them. They take from us. We'll take from them. We'll be all right. Right? So, so exactly. We're, we're going to get there. So think about that. $3 billion. And, and, and that's just Walmart. All the other retailers is $41.6 billion. That's stolen from the economy. Taken from the economy. Now, grocery stores generally have a markup of about 1%. They mark everything up about 1%, so that's their profit. They make 1% on everything. So that means for every dollar that's stolen from a grocery store, they have to make up $100, meaning they have to sell $100 worth of groceries to make up for that $1 stolen. So give an example. Go to Milo, take a T-bone steak that's worth $7, stick it in your purse, stick it wherever. Uh, actually, I'm not teaching you how to do this. Um, <laughs> take it home whatever, that's a $7 steak. That means Bilo has to sell $700 of groceries. That means Richard has to go buy $700 worth of groceries at Bilo to recover for the person who took the steak. Can you, can, can you imagine that? What would that do to, what would that do to us? So, so as Neri said, that, that the, the retailers and the grocery stores, they, they just don't come up with money out of no thin air and, and pay for it, it's put down to the consumer, and I saw a statistic that said that upwards to 33% increase in prices just to cover shoplifting. And that's just one phase of things, right? We're not talking about identity theft yet, or credit card fraud, or banking fraud, or corporate fraud. We could probably sit here all day and Rick, Rick could lecture us on corporate fraud. He took lots of classes in that. Can you imagine? This is just one little sliver of the, of the economy. And the human condition and, and even stealing, theft, the sin runs deep. And we can justify ourselves that it's okay to take something that's not ours and, and thinking that it will never hurt anybody when it absolutely does. Imagine if you can have 33% of your grocery budget back. My kids would eat better cereal. Stealing, like all sins, is not a victimless crime. It exploits others. And this is what the passage talks about today. It talks, talks to the, the thief, the thief among the, the, the church, those who are a part of the church. And so but today, though, my, my plan of today in covering this passage is, is first I want us to unpack how stealing denies the power of the gospel. Second, I want to talk about how we are created to work hard and work honorably, as the passage tells us. And third, I want us to identify the purpose of our work. And then lastly, we're going to apply the gospel uh, to everything. So first, theft denies the power of the gospel. So setting up the context of our passage, why would Paul address specifically this issue of, of, of stealing, of, of to, to, to thieves, right? Um, and... and 
And I think because he's actually talking to people who were a part of the church, people who were Christians who were thieves. I think that's exactly what he's talking about. Now, in, in, our, in our country, uh, our Department of Labor tells us that our unemployment rate is around 4.9%, probably a lot higher than that. But even at, at, even at that rate, or even a little bit higher, or slightly higher, or even at 10%, we still see... We still something, see something that's completely unprecedented in, in, in history or, uh, or even globally right now, that it, we can get jobs and we can have stable jobs, jobs that last even throughout the year. This isn't necessarily the case that was taking place in, in Ephesus and in the first century. That wasn't the, that wasn't the case. Their economy was not, not the same, that, that even people... Normal people, not just the, the, the criminal-minded ones, were stealing. Stealing to make ends meet, right? Workers who, who worked only seasonally or skilled laborers or tradesmen or whatever it is, they, there was no welfare system to help them, and so what the only avenue that they saw, and that was the cultural norm, was just to take what was not yours. Now, regardless of the circumstance, though, Regardless of the circumstance, and regardless, what does the Bible teach us? It does not justify or even compromise holiness or righteousness. It says, let the thief no longer steal. And he was speaking to the church. He's speaking to those who are Christians now, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, co-heirs with Christ. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to us. He's talking to us. That the church is not to be this way anymore. That even though that might have been your norm to make your ends meet, not anymore. But is this the, is this the way of the Bible, uh, just ignoring maybe social and economic injustice? Is that what the Bible's doing? Just kind of denying that? doesn't care for the, the welfare of the poor people and those who, who are unable to provide for themselves, what are they supposed to do? Right? What, what else are they supposed to do? There's nowhere else they can't get any help or anything else from the government or from anybody else. It's, it's, it's a dog-eat-dog world. This is what they do. Does God really care more about his laws than he actually does for the people and for their own basic needs? Like We're not talking about a new beamer. We're talking about food. Is this command that Paul's given, is it unloving? Unsensitive to not meet their need? We know what the Bible says. It says here, you know, let the thief no longer steal. We also know the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal, whatever which one that may be, right? Thou shalt not steal, we know it. And we certainly have talked about in the statistics the, the effects of stealing on a community. It had effects on the church in Ephesus and the city in Ephesus. But our motive, our motive to not steal, and you can just kind of put anything in that category there, is not just to be morally upright or just to be good or, or just because we, we know that's going to hinder human flourishing, but our motive is one because it is rooted in the character and nature of God. Our motive to, to not steal now, because our identity is now in, in that nature, in that same nature of Christ, that 
holiness and, and righteousness. And we also now believe as a, as a church that it's not our morality that brings about human flourishing in culture and in community, but we know it's godliness. We know it's godliness. We know it's holiness and righteousness. And when those things are pursued, human flourishing will take place. And this is what's wrong with what I believe is America's moral majority, which no longer is the majority, by the way. This is what was, what was seriously wrong with it, because it advocated if everybody was, was good, everybody had this present, presenting of morals, then God would bless America. It's just not the case. It's godliness. Godliness in the, in the gospel. It's not outside of Christ. It's not the separation, right? It's not the caterpillar. It's the butterfly. Transformation. Now, the assault that we take when we take and steal is to assert ourselves as the rightful owner. That's what we're doing. I deserve this, therefore I own it. I'm taking it. I deserve a good steak tonight. I, I deserve this or what, whatever it may be. And when we do that, we are asserting ourselves over the authority, the divine authority of God, that God doesn't own everything. And he does. There's not one thing, I think it was Abraham Kuyper who said, there's not one thing on this earth or all of creation that God does not declare mine. And our rebellious action, stealing, is to rebel against that truth, that revealed truth, that all things are owned by God. So, brothers and sisters, we put off all forms of theft, and we do not give in to the temptation to steal. Sounds obvious, right? Sounds like a no-brainer. But as you know, it's not always the gross forms of, of, of theft, like measured in our statistics, that we are faced with. That maybe the temptations that we, we are faces, face, our, our temptations, I, I think, come in this area of dishonesty that, that come in a lot, little bit more subtle ways, a little bit subtle ways that are a little bit more dangerous. While I was in seminary, I had a, a job for a while at Starbucks, and, and um, each employee, as, as we worked there, we would, we would get tips, and not personally, but they would put it in a tip jar, and if you worked a certain amount of hours, that they, you know, they put it all together, and then they would divide it up according to the hours that you made. And at the end of the week, everybody got an envelope with cash in it, you know, just, just straight cash. And, and at this particular Starbucks that I worked at was really good on tips, and sometimes you would make more tips than you would make in your, uh, um, from your check. It was, it was great. It was such, it was such a blessing. Um, in my first time receiving the tips, the shift manager took me aside and said, hey, now when you get these tips, you're, you, you need to claim them. And so here, let's go into the computer. I'll show you how to do it. And, 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 and she went ahead and said, uh, you know, this is how much I usually put in. I don't, I don't really claim everything. I just put in a little bit. And, and, you know, implying you can do the same thing. Now, when I got that job, when I got that job at Starbucks, Christina and I, we, Christina, we just moved to, to Louisville. We were a couple weeks there at Louisville, in Louisville trying to find jobs, and Lord, Lord bless, and we got, we got jobs. And it was like right at the nick of time. I mean, it's per, I mean, the bank account was empty, tuition's been paid, books been bought, uh, rent has been paid. But in a couple weeks, it was done. If not, we didn't have a job, and we were within days, and the Lord was so gracious and kind. We got the job. We needed to make money. The Lord provided. But instantly with that became an instant temptation to do what? 
to withhold, to not tell the truth, to, to not, to not uh, tell, the, tell the truth. And, and, and I tried to think of all the kind of ways for me to justify myself, to justify how, why I should keep this. I earned it. Well, I mean, it was a tip, so truly I kind of didn't. But doesn't the government have enough? Why do they need my tip money? And plus, I was a good conservative, so it was like, they have no right, right, to take my money. Taxation without representation, you know, kind of thing. And I want to have my own little Starbucks tea party. But, but, the more, more was at stake than just a few dollars. More, more was at stake than just a few dollars. There was sin, there was honoring God, and then there was trusting God. There was trusting God. Did, I mean, God just provided this job. Was I going to trust him even right here? These 25 bucks that I had, was I going to put it in correctly? And we could change the example, right? What if it's, what if it's falsifying your time card or not paying your debts? Or, or return, you know, the classic one is getting an overpayment from a cashier and seeing if you would return it kind of thing. All that is in the, in the realm of stealing, which may be a little bit more kind of in the, in the gray area or a little bit more of the, the socially acceptable. I think the command is the same, that we are to still put it off and let the thief no longer steal. Because what matters the most is not what other people see, it's what the Lord sees. So whatever it is, we, we put it off. We put it off. We take on... Christ. And isn't this the, what the whole letter of Ephesians is about to the church? It's about God's amazing, gracious work to overcome spiritual depravity and spiritual impoverishedness and give us the riches and wealth of Christ? Absolutely. So the comparison is, thief, you have now no reason anymore to steal. You have Christ. You have, you're, you're a co-heir with the king of the universe. And that's your identity. This is who you are. You're no longer the thief. And this is who we are. This is who we are. So whether it costs us a little bit of money or some money, whatever it is, let us not be inconsistent with the new life we have in Christ. Let us be upright in all of these things and pursue righteousness and holiness. So number one, to steal is to deny the gospel Second, I want to show how we were created to work hard, as this passage goes on to tell us that the thief is no longer to steal, but rather let him labor. Rather let him labor. So, so here's the replacing. He's not just say, don't steal. He says, no, but work. Don't steal, but work. Right? I think a, a, a trait that many of us have well, we've been taught this well, and it's so good, it's so encouraging to see that. I, I, I love seeing that in, 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 in you men and, and women who, who work hard because we were created to do so. We were created to do so. And the encouragement to the thief is, even if you have to work twice as hard, work hard. Work hard. So we were created to work. God created us to work, and work is a gift from Him. Now, thinking about that statement, how countercultural that is, right? How countercultural that is, because because we want to seek pleasures and, and comforts, and we want to we want to seek refuge from 
work, right? We want to seek refuge from those things, but we were created to, to work. Work is not a product of the fall, right? The, the thorns and the thistles and the toiling in that work is from the fall. The rebelliousness of the children that do not listen to you when you're teaching is part of the fall. But you standing and teaching is not a part of the fall. Work is not of the fall, but it is a gift of God. Adam was commanded before the fall to name the animals and steward the garden, to care and cultivate it. And the same goes for us. Exodus 20 verse 9 says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The best workers, honest workers, hardest workers, and balanced workers should be those who understand the gospel. Our economy, I wish I could spend time really digging this out and give you the history, but our economy in the turn of the century when it really began to really boom was in product because of Christianity. Because men who believed the gospel worked hard. Because God created them to work. God created them to work and not to be slugs, not to be lazy, but to work hard. So when you come home from a, a, a long, hard day or a long, hard night, whatever it may be, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Not just for the blessings to provide for your family, but because you are fulfilling a creation mandate and as well as understanding the gospel. And work is good. Laziness is sin. Proverbs 6.6 6 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. I love that passage right there. Consider her ways and be wise. I don't like ants. You know, the biting kind, I don't like them. But they are hard workers. And they're ambitious little suckers too, aren't they? Why? They work hard. And it's, hey, lazy, look at them. Proverbs 28, verse 19. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Or consider even 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12. For even when, you, even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Scripture is very clear on, on what it is to work and even for us in the church as we, as we are to, to go and to work and laziness and such is to be disciplined. And laziness is to be even disciplined. But our work that we do, our work that we do, church, is not a work to earn favor with God, though. Our work we do is not to earn favor for God or earn mercy from God or earn grace from God. For as we know, as we studied Ephesians 1 through 3, that grace has already been freely given. We haven't earned it. You can't earn it. And so all of our work, gospel work, work in your jobs, careers, is because of what God has told us to do. Because of what he has done. We honor the Lord because of what he has done in us. And we're faithful to that, to, to work hard, to, to labor. To labor. 
Galatians 6.10 shows us what good and honorable work looks like, even in the church. He says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. I love that, because, because Galatians 6.10 is telling us that work is not just what we do in, in our jobs, but work is also what we do in here. We're laboring for one another for the household of faith. And that points us to our next point, and that is the purpose of work. shows us what our purpose of work is. Why do we work? What is its purpose? Doesn't it seem sometimes meaningless? Toiling, right? That's part of that is, right? Part of the fall. We're toiling. And our culture puts such a huge emphasis even on careers and, and, and work and such as that's how we define ourselves find our identity in, in, in what we do. Hi, my name's Ben. Nice to meet you. What do you do? Right? Isn't that kind of the next question when you meet someone? And, you know, that, oh, that's what we always say. And, and it's because we want to, we want to identify ourselves in, 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 in what we do. But is that what our jobs are for? I mean, isn't our jobs also, maybe, maybe are they just for just for earning? Making big, getting big bucks? Big homes, big cars, big stuff, lots of stuff. Isn't that what it's about? I think our world is really confused on these things, aren't they? That that's what's going to satisfy. That's what's going to leave you, you know, feeling like you've achieved or you've, or you've made it. But look how many people are dissatisfied with their jobs. And they, they look across, well, if I could just be that guy... If I could just be that guy, then, then I'll be happy. But if you walked across the street and you asked that guy, hey, man, are you really happy? What's his response to me? No, man, I want to be like that guy. So you, you see the, the trap that we are in, but work has a purpose. Not only have we been created to work and to produce, but work has a purpose to produce for the glory of God. And he has created work to do that. And it's revealed in our passage this morning. Our prosperity and our work is for others. Look at the verse again. But rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Uh, John Piper was really helpful in this passage. He, he taught uh, that there's three levels. There's, there's three levels on which we, we live with, with our things and how we, how we work and the, and the, the product of, of work. The first level is this, is that, um, that we work, or that we, I'm sorry, the first level is that we, we steal to gain. All right? So there's the first, first level. Second level is that we work to gain. And our third level is that we work to give. All right, so here's the three, the three levels that are set before us. Now, point one, we can kind of already put to the side. We, we know that's sinful. We know that's, that's wrong. We talked about that in, in point one. Steal to gain is wrong, dishonoring to God, dishonoring to the gospel. But what about work level two? What about level two? Level two is such, is that this is the level that I think our world is trying to push every single one of us. This is the level that, that we, which we are being pushed to constantly. 
That that's what our work is about. Our, our work is so that you can live more comfortably, you can get to the next stage, you can have the, the next things, and, and there's billions of dollars being spent to convince us of such things. Billions of dollars being, being, being spent. And that's re- relentlessly being pushed down our throats on that. But what the Bible does is the Bible pushes at us to be at level three. Look at level three. Level three. So that we work to give. We work to give. Not to just accumulate and to to consume everything for ourselves, but to give. And this is what Ephesians 4.28 is showing us as well. It's pushing us not to level two, but to level three, to, to labor, to, to labor so that others may share, that others with, with need may share, may, may have. We, we labor, we work hard honestly so that, yes, we absolutely take care of the needs of our family, but it's not to live like kings on this earth, but then to take what's left and to, to give. To give. To alleviate the spiritual and physical misery. And, and this is where, where when we asked the questions earlier about is the Bible being unloving and is God being unloving to not take care of the poor? This is, this is where that is alleviated. Those who are unable to work or, or those who once were in sin and need help to get out of that and be able to start working and provide for themselves, that's where the church comes in in Galatians 6.10 and cares for those that are among you. Do you see how it all, how it all works? That's how, that's how God has designed it to be. That if there's a brother or sister who feels like they are, that they have to steal to make ends meet, we can walk up to them and say, brother, sister, repent of that sin and then let me help you. That's burying with one another. That's caring for one another. That's caring for the widows and the orphans. That's help funding the, the building of the kingdom of God and the church. I like the quote by John Wesley. He said, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, and then give as much as you can. That's simple. That's a simple quote, right? So the issue is not how much we make, whether it's six figures or two figures. It's a matter of the heart. Our lifestyles do not have to be according to what our culture says your lifestyle should be, but to give freely. So going back to Piper, he gives an illustration. He says, God has made us to be conduits of his grace. The dangerous thinking, the conduit should be lined with gold. It shouldn't. Copper will do. Copper can carry unbelievable riches to others. You understand that? We don't, we don't need to line our conduits with, with gold when copper will do, and then what's left over maybe to buy that gold can be used for others and to carry riches to others and to carry the gospel to, to the nations. We need to be conduits of copper, of God's grace to others at our own expense. 
to show the purpose of what our hard work is to be for, and that is to display the glory of God and the glory of God in our work. So it's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, your, there your heart will be also. Think about that. We show what we treasure. We invest in what we treasure. We, we buy what we, we treasure. We steal what we want. We treasure. And there is where our heart is. The, the great transformation and the, the great regeneration that God has done so graciously and so um, um, amazingly in our life is also displayed in this passage. Do you see the progression in the passage? The once thief is now a giver. I, 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 couldn't, I, I couldn't help but, but run to the passage of the story about Zacchaeus. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't help but, but, but go there. What, what a transformation of, of God's grace. What a, what a transformation, a metamorphosis on what new life looks like. Putting away of the old and taking on the new. That's what regeneration looks like. So here is Zacchaeus, right? The wee little man. And the wee little man was he. What did he do? He climbed in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Lord passed by that day, come on, I didn't even go to Awana. I was at a Catholic church. We were bored the whole time. Come on. As the Lord passed away, passed by that day, he, he looked up the tree and said, Zacchaeus, come down, for I'm going. That's the line that makes me weep. That's the line that makes me weep every time. I'm sorry. That's why I didn't want to sing it. But think about it. Here is this thief that everybody hated. A thief. And Jesus walks up, and literally, that song is like so theologically and biblically correct. Right? And it's amazing. That doesn't happen very often in children's songs. And, and, and Jesus looks up at this man who he was eager to see the Lord. And, and I believe at that point, salvation man was taking place. The Holy Spirit was saving and regenerating this man. Because he saw his need. He saw his, his need for Christ. So although everything that he gained in this life was, was through stealing, right, in the gray area, it was gray, but it was stealing, it was dishonest, he was so wealthy in this world. He had so much money. He had power. He could do anything. He could put people in prison if he wanted to. You're going to make fun of my stature? I'm putting you in jail. And yet, he was so spiritually impoverished. So spiritually dead that when the Lord walked by, his need was so great that he climbed in a sycamore tree, which I guess is a really good climbing tree, and God, the Son, in such grace, looked at Zacchaeus, told him to get down from the tree, and by such grace, he went to his house to eat with him. Like, let's not take a granted, though, that he didn't what, just need an excuse, and Jesus wasn't just hungry. And he knew if he goes to a wealthy man's house, he's going to eat well. 
No, there's something that happens there in supper. Right? Supper. And what happened? Zacchaeus, overwhelmed by such grace of the Son of God, repents. Jesus didn't tell him what to do. He didn't pray a prayer. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't walk forward. But he went to his safe. He went to his back room. And he got all of his money, the riches that he accumulated over his life. And he pat him on the table. And he said, anyone that I defraud, anyone that I've stolen from, taken from, I'm going to pay you back, and I'm going to pay you back four times. Now, was that works? Was he then being saved by, by works? No, I think he was already saved. He got, he got saved and repentance took place. Transformation took place. Metamorphosis took place because Jesus said, surely salvation has come to this house this day. Zacchaeus, who was a thief who stole, gave. Repentance Repentance is the key here. Repentance has been the key each step that we've been walking through in, in Ephesians 4. Repentance is the key. Because repentance is the, is the key that, that unlocks, I think, such great beautiful work of God. Repentance isn't just something we say. It's something that we do. You don't say, I repent. You do repentance. We, we do repentance. And this is what's being shown. The gospel motive in this passage here shows what amazing grace does in the life of a person. It takes a thief and makes them a giver. Because the real wealth is not in what we take or what we accumulate. It's how we give but it's in how we give. You see, this morning, we, we may not be thieves, or we may not categorize ourselves as thieves. We're certainly not going to call the sheriff's department on you. But certainly this passage here definitely shows us our need, not only to give, but also what repentance looks like, what real repentance looks like, what the fruit of real repentance looks like. So just insert, insert in the blank, whatever, whatever it may be. Repentance has a fruit to it. The putting off into, the, the putting on, the, the taking off and then replacing it with something else. And repentance is kind of that, that avenue of putting on. That's what the gospel does. This is what the gospel does in the life of people. This is why grace is so amazing. It takes those who are, who are impoverished and destitute and depraved and makes us rich in Christ. I want to close this morning reading from Ephesians 2, going back to Ephesians 2. Just to dwell upon, think about the gospel before we pray and we'll, we'll move on. But Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, love that. And this is not and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Right? So here's grace. Not a result of works. So no one may boast. 
For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the work of the gospel in our hearts and even the work that you are doing now to remove sin and replace it with Christ's likeness. I pray that you would help us to see the great purposes of our honest labor, not as gain for ourselves, but to see your purposes of caring for one another. We believe that this is the power of the gospel and what repentance looks like in the life of the church. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would show us more and more how to repent like Zacchaeus. In Jesus' name, amen.